Hi listeners, I'm Zoe. And I'm Madden. And you're listening to the Unnamed Doe Podcast. Today, I'm going to tell you the story of a young man who hasn't even been completely found. This is the story of the boy in Wando River. Before I start, I just want to say that this story sucked me in from the moment I clicked on the picture on the Doe Network. By the way, check out the Doe Network if you haven't already. I literally spent hours and hours just sitting at my desk researching this case because I was so hyper fixated on it. With that said, are you ready to jump right in? Yes, I am. This story starts on August 20th, 2006 in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina. It was a Sunday afternoon and a family consisting of a couple and their two young sons was out on a fishing trip on Wando River. At around 2 p.m., they saw something strange floating around Wando Bridge. It was something black, but they couldn't tell what it was. They were fishing and obviously didn't think the worst of what they could be seeing, and they just assumed it was an anchor. They must have gotten closer because they quickly realized what they had stumbled upon was not an anchor. They had found a skull. The family called 911 while the husband used a life preserver to take the skull back to the bank to prevent it from being carried out by the tide that was quickly rising. Shortly after, the family met Mount Pleasant Police at Rimley's Point, which was a boat landing nearby. The family guided law enforcement back to the spot on the bridge where they had left the skull. I guess my only question so far is, how do you mistake a skull for an anchor? You know what, that's a really good question that I don't have the answer to because, number one, I wouldn't think an anchor would float, but that's just what my source material says, so that's what we're going to go with. As I said, all that was found was the skull, but I want to take this moment to point out that the mandible wasn't recovered, so they really only found the cranium. All source material basically says skull, So if you see that, just know that the mandible, or the lower part of the jaw, was not actually recovered. All they found was a skull, no jawbone. Did they look for the rest of the body? I would assume that they looked for the rest of the body. I didn't find anything that really said if they did, but I feel like that's very typical practice. But there was nothing else that was found. Okay, so what do we know about the biological profile? Do we know anything else except that only a skull was found? Yeah, But let's start with what we don't know. Since we only have the cranium, they were not able to estimate stature. This includes height and weight, so one out of the four biological profile features could not be determined. Alright, so we've ruled out height. Can we determine age? Yeah, we actually have a really good idea about the age of this individual. The estimated age range is 14 to 19. I think I have an idea how they might know this, but why don't you tell us? Well, according to the information from an article from the Post and Courier done in collaboration with the Charleston coroner, we actually know that this estimation is based on teeth development. That is the thought I had in mind, so I'm glad you said that. Teeth are really reliable for estimating age in younger individuals, which you might remember us talking about on our first episode about Little Miss X. Exactly. So we know that there were emerging molars in the back of the maxilla or the upper jaw. This is an indication that the individual wasn't a child, but they weren't quite in full adulthood either. They were somewhere in the middle, making the age estimation of 14 to 19 sound even more solid. Based on the teeth, how did they reach 14 to 19? So we know that teeth number 1 and number 16 were not yet erupted. Now, this is numbered in a system that is different than we're used to using when we talk about teeth. So I pulled up a dentist chart. Would you mind telling the listeners what teeth were not erupted? It looks like the two wisdom teeth were not in yet, right? The third molars. Right. So I feel pretty confident believing that this is someone between 14 and 19. They could be a little older though too. I'm 20 and my third molars still haven't come in. But all in all, I think this age estimation is really, really beneficial and pretty solid. Now we have age. Now we know we don't have height. What about ancestry or race? This is a factor that we actually also have really well reported. 
pretty much all my sources say the same thing. It's estimated that this doe was black and white. It seems that the individual displayed some characteristics of each ancestry group. Some sources only report the individual as being black, but most say mixed ancestry. Okay, so we've addressed three out of four now. We have one left. Do we know the sex of this decedent? We do, but it's kind of a bumpy ride getting to what is currently believed. Originally, the estimation for sex for this cranium was a biological female. This was agreed upon for a while. In fact, in the 2016 article from the Post and Courier, which interviewed the coroner, they still believed this doe was a biological female. If in 2016 they believed that the doe was a female, I am guessing that they now believe the doe is a male. Exactly. They believe that this doe is a biological male. That's really interesting that they decided to change the sex. If you remember from episode one, we talked about the Graham and Tremble case. So it is nice to see that they changed their estimation based on the facts available. Do we know what did change in this case, though, to make them change their estimation? So I'm not exactly sure what caused them to change this doe from a Jane to a John. But I assumed it's because of DNA testing or because of some other more effective methodology they used for estimating sex. We've talked before about how science changes fast, so it makes sense that this case was relooked at and maybe it was just determined that the original estimation was wrong. Nothing I found really says why this change occurred, just that it did. And now this doe is considered a John Doe. So at least as recently as 2016, they thought this John Doe was a Jane Doe. When did this change happen, though? I'm not 100% sure. I found a Facebook post on a page called Help ID Me that was posted on September 30th, 2018, and it listed him as a John Doe. So my best guess is sometime between 2016 and 2018 is when this new estimation was released. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. You haven't mentioned it yet, but is there a known cause of death? No, unfortunately, the cause of death is unknown. All my source material says is that there was no visible sign of trauma to the cranium. This does not rule in or out if this case is a homicide. Now would be a really good point to mention that not all unidentified remains cases are actually homicides. That's actually a really common misconception, but in reality, a lot of these cases are truly just accidents. Sometimes a person can get lost hiking and not have any form of identification. Also, sadly, suicide victims can be placed on the unidentified remains list. This can cause them to go unidentified when they are later discovered. A lot of things could happen for someone to end up on the unidentified remains list. Yeah, you haven't even begun to scratch the surface of this. We talked in the first episode about how sometimes migrants die trying to cross the border and then it's hard to connect them to missing persons cases. There are a million different reasons why you could end up on the unidentified persons list. I think this concept is just really important to point out because we're not going to discuss any real suspects in this case. Anything really could have happened to this young man. And we just don't know. So we're going to keep our options open, but we're not going to make any bold claims either. Something that we have access to really dive deep into with this case is geography. NamUs actually provides a map of the location where our John Doe was found. I just sent you that map. Would you mind describing it to our listeners? You're looking for the orange dot sort of in the middle of the screen. The orange dot is smack dab in the middle of a road called the Mark Clark Expressway and also the Wando River. So the Wando River and the Mark Clark Expressway intersect each other at a perpendicular-ish angle. They kind of make like a T if you want to think about it like that. And it looks like we're just outside of Charleston, just slightly to the north. Yeah, there is a little bit of confusion that really got me for a while that I really want to point out because the orange dot on the map is showing the Mark Clark Expressway. 
That's what sources are calling the Wando Bridge. However, if you use Google Maps to search Wando Bridge, it says that the next bridge north is actually Wando Bridge. I was really confused, so I looked it up. It turns out the bridge where our John Doe was found is actually called the Wando River Bridge. It doesn't seem like a big deal, but it was really confusing to me while researching this case, so I just wanted to point it out and tell you the difference. The bridge we are talking about is specifically the Wando River Bridge, which is the Mark Clark Expressway, which is closer to the heart of Charleston. I know that I said on the map it was a little closer to Charleston, but earlier you said he was found in Mount Pleasant. Why are you now saying Charleston? That's a good point, and I'm really glad that you brought it up. Mount Pleasant is a town, but it's really just a large suburban area in Charleston, kind of like University City or Maplewood in St. Louis. It's a city inside the bigger metropolis area. So how does Mount Pleasant compare to Charleston? That's also a good question. Mount Pleasant has a much lower crime rate than the surrounding areas of Charleston. However, violent crime is still more elevated than the national average. It's not nearly as bad as it is inside Charleston, but it is still elevated. Charleston seems to have been having a lower violent crime rate since the early 2010s. The Charleston crime rate has dropped to about the national average now. What was the crime rate like before 2010, in 2006, when our John Doe was found? The crime rate in Charleston was actually much, much higher around the time John Doe was discovered. Okay. I think this is an interesting fact. It's always good to look at the crime rates when looking into a cold case. Like we said earlier, we have no idea the cause of death for this John Doe, but it is interesting to look at the crime rate around where he was found, and specifically in the time frame when he was found. I said earlier that we were slightly north of Charleston, just a little bit upriver. So what was the crime rate like upriver outside of Charleston? As you go up Wando River, specifically towards Wando, South Carolina, the violent crime rate drops significantly. However, the closer you get to Charleston and away from the Wando River, the violent crime rate gets higher. The further towards the coast you go as well, the crime rate becomes higher too. It's really along that Wando River area where the crime rate is lower. On average, the areas that are not Charleston or directly related to Charleston are much less prone to violent crime. That means the further upstream the Wando River you go, the less crime there likely is. Do you think that this could mean that the John Doe was at a higher chance of being a victim of a violent crime? I think there's an increased chance, yes. However, like I said earlier, it's really hard to know right now. Without the rest of his remains, it would be really hard to find enough to believe this is a homicide. I'm not saying that it's not a possibility, and I do think there's an increased chance, but I think we need to identify this John Doe before we make any old claims. We've addressed all the aspects of the biological profile, but I gotta know, do we have forensic art in this case by any chance? We do! This case is really interesting because we are told exactly how the reconstruction was made. According to the article from the Post and Courier in 2016 that interviewed the coroner from Charleston and her assistant, the process to make this reconstruction was broken into many steps. First, the skull was put into a CT machine at the Medical University Hospital of South Carolina. Several images were taken and cross-sectional x-ray scans were also completed. This gave a 3D image of the cranium. The Charleston Coroner and the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children partnered together on this project. Once the images were completed, they sent to Nickmick, and a forensic artist used digital media to construct the image that we now have access to. That's actually really interesting. I feel like we don't get to hear about the behind-the-scenes process that often. Yeah, it was really cool to read that in this case. And as I've mentioned, the mandible for this individual is missing. That means that the bottom half of the individual's face is estimated in the rendering. It's made as an approximation based on other mandibles of individuals with similar features to John Doe. I feel like that could actually be kind of confusing if we're using the reconstruction for identification purposes, but the entire lower half of the face is just up to artistic interpretation, then I feel like we don't actually know what this person looked like. 
That's a fair point. It is just the lower part of the face. I think I get what you're saying. Just the lower jaw area, like the chin and stuff. Yeah, so basically just the chin and the jaw and the bottom half of the lips are up for interpretation. So before we actually get to the finalized forensic art, we actually have access to what looks like the beginning stages of the rendering. Madden, I'm going to give you what looks like the preliminary drafts of the reconstruction. And of course, listeners, these will be posted to our website and our Instagram. Make sure you're following us on both to see these photos. Without further ado, Madden, will you describe these for us? He has short hair, even though I'm not sure how they knew that since it was just a skull. I'm guessing it's just an estimation. It's really hard to tell quite what he looks like because he's turned out a side profile. There's really not much else to say about this one. It's clearly unfinished. Yeah. So now I have what seems to be the finalized reconstruction, and you will see this pretty much everywhere you look for this case. So Madden, go ahead and describe this if you would. This is a way better picture. It's much more lifelike. You can actually tell what he looks like because he's facing straight on. He has smaller eyes that are a little bit closer together, dark eyebrows, dark hair, bigger lips, and a slightly wide nose. Yeah, that's a really good description of him. We have these reconstructions that are very lifelike, specifically that final one. And these have been really helpful when looking for potential matches to missing persons. There are several missing persons cases that have been excluded, including Michael Borges, Harrison Butler Sr., Antoine Williams, Kevin McClam, Lakeisha Jones, and Sherry Truesdale. Since these missing people have been excluded on NamUs, we are not going to cover their cases in depth today. But if you want to know more about their cases, be sure to check out their NamUs profiles. And let us know if you want to hear a Patreon episode about some of them. We can definitely do that. Okay, that's a lot of missing people that have already been ruled out, which is always helpful. Are there any more potential matches? I believe that there are. There are actually three missing people that I'm going to bring up today that could potentially be this John Doe. The first case I have for you is Farika Brown. I actually stumbled upon his case really early in my research, probably before I was ready for it. There was an article I found really useful when looking for matches from Fox Carolina. The article is from May 25th, 2023, and it details cases of missing children in South Carolina for National Missing Children's Day. I was scrolling through the pictures of missing children when I noticed Farika. I stopped because he reminded me of the artist's rendering of our John Doe. Madden, I just sent you a picture of Farika, if you wouldn't mind describing and comparing him to the rendering we have. It looks like Farika has a hat on, so I can't really tell what his hair looks like, but of course the hair on the rendering was an estimation anyway. He has the bigger lips, the wider nose that look like the composite, but the composite's nose is actually quite a bit smaller than Farika's, and I think Farika's eyes are a little bit bigger too. Those are fair points, but from a glance, they look pretty similar to me. One thing I'll definitely say is that the composite sketch looks like a younger version of Farika. Farika just looks older. Definitely. 100%. I really see some similarities between Farika and this reconstruction. I know the picture of Farika isn't really the best quality, but you can still see some similarities. I can definitely see it. Tell me more about Farika's case so we can actually decide if he could be a match or not. His case starts on February 14th, 1995. According to the Doe Network, he left his home in Lancaster, South Carolina, where he lived with his grandma and cousin, on Central Avenue on foot. His car, a gray Dodge Colt, was left in the driveway, and he left all his personal items and his clothes at home as well. This included his wallet and driver's license. His family didn't hear from him that night or the next day, and this behavior was very unlike him. They got worried and reported him missing. Authorities think that foul play is likely. All right, tell me a little bit more before I decide if I think this could be possible. 
Okay, well, before I can tell you more, I have to tell you a different version of events of the day he disappeared. Because according to the Charlie Project, there's a little bit of a different story of what happened to him the day he disappeared. On February 14th, he asked his aunt to take him to the Piedmont Medical Center in Rock Hill, South Carolina. His grandma was a patient at the hospital at the time. The two went to visit her and arrived back in Lancaster between 3 p.m. or 4 p.m. It was at this time that Farika asked his aunt to take him somewhere because his car was being repaired. She refused, so he decided to just walk there. This is when he disappeared. A little while after he disappeared, Farika's friends returned his car to his home and left the keys with his relatives. Apparently, it took six days to report him missing because of his grandma being in the hospital. No one noticed his absence. Okay, I am really, really confused, and I have a lot of questions. If he lived with his cousin and his grandma, why did it take six days for him to be reported missing? That's a really good question that I just don't have the answer to. Also, his car was being fixed, but then according to the Charlie Project, after he left on foot, his friends returned his car to the driveway. Why did his friends have his car? Were they fixing it? I don't know. And that's what's really confusing is because the Doe Network says his car was left in the driveway. There's no mention of it being repaired. This seems like a really big difference in stories and a really important one to get straight. Do we have any idea why this discrepancy is happening? Because it's really confusing. Honestly, I don't know. And it's super confusing because the source material contradicts so much. Another thing I'm really confused about is if it's well reported that he left on foot, but he wasn't reported missing for six days, who saw him leave on foot? Yeah, I have a lot of questions about some of the details of this case, and no one really seems to have the answers to them. Okay, what makes you think that Farika could be this John Doe? I have several reasons that I believe that Farika could be our John Doe. Farika was 18 at the time of his disappearance. He was 6'1 and 150 pounds at the time he disappeared. He's black. He had shoulder-length black braided hair when he disappeared. He has brown eyes, a pierced left ear, but no earring, and scars on his right thigh, back, head, and a mark on his right arm. He was last known to be wearing black guest brand jeans, a black hooded shirt, a three-quarter length black coat, Timberland boots size 10, and a plastic black digital watch. Obviously, our John Doe wasn't found with any personal items, and obviously, only his cranium was recovered, so there's things that we don't know. But the age, the timeline, and the photo compared to the reconstruction make me think this could be a match. Okay, but what else? Okay, okay, I hear you. Let's look at where Farika went missing from and where our John Doe was found. Farika lived on the 700th block of Central Avenue in Lancaster, South Carolina. John Doe was found under Wando River Bridge in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina. Madden, I pulled up a picture to show you how far apart these two places are, and can you tell me about how far apart they are? According to the map you sent me, there are a couple different routes you can take, and the shorter route is about 2 hours and 40 minutes, give or take, and the longer route is close to 3 hours. It looks like Lancaster is just northwest of the Wando River where Arjondo was found. I know it's not super close to each other, but it's in a very reasonable driving distance. Also, remember how we said that foul play was suspected in Farika's case? I do. Well, if foul play is suspected, there must be a reason for it. If Farika did meet foul play and is the victim of homicide, his murderer would probably want to move his body far away from him to not draw suspicion to himself. To me, it makes sense that a murderer would want to take Farika's body all the way to a different location, like the Wando River, to not draw any suspicion onto him or herself. I could see that being a real possibility. Now, this is all just speculation. Like we've discussed, there is only so much speculation we can do in these cases, and especially if we don't know the cause of death of John Doe. I don't know if Farika is our John Doe. 
but he might be. If there's even a small chance Farika could be John Doe, I think it should be investigated. Do you have any idea if Namus has excluded Farika from our John Doe's case? No, they have not. And I think this is a strong lead. I think it's the strongest one I found, and I hope that it's been looked at. If not, I think it definitely should be. I agree. So the next potential match I have for you comes from a Facebook lead on that page I talked about earlier, Help ID Me. This is the case of Desmond Santonio Dix. Desmond was 16 years old on January 30th, 1996. According to law enforcement, on that day he was last seen, he was held at gunpoint and taken by unknown persons in Atlanta, Georgia. He's a black man and would be 44 years old today. He was 5'6 and 135 pounds when he disappeared. He had brown hair when he disappeared. His left eye is brown and his right eye is gray. I have a couple pictures to show you if you wouldn't mind. The first picture of him is around the time of his disappearance. You guys didn't get to hear my reaction when I first saw this picture, but I think that Desmond looks a lot like the Nick Mick rendering that we saw earlier. I think it's really similar. Desmond's eyes are a little further apart than the composite sketch, and also Desmond's picture is really, really hard to get a good look at. It's really small. You can tell it's been blown up. It's just kind of hard to see, but from far away, at least I think they look really similar. I think that they look similar. I also have an age progression of Desmond. He would be about 37 in this rendering, and it's from the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. Could you describe and compare again, Madden? Before I compare these two images, if you don't know what an age regression photo is, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, NCMIC, you've heard us talk about them before. They do great composite sketches, but they also age up missing people and do digital renderings of what they would look like if they were older. I believe they do a digital rendering of an age progression every two years before they turn 18, and then every five years after the missing person is 18 or older. That would be what an age progression photo is. Now onto these photos. The age progression photo, I could really see it being an aged up version of the composite sketch. To me, they look really, really similar. I think the eyebrows look really similar, but it was just a skull, so you can't even estimate facial hair. So I don't know how reliable that is, because if you can't estimate facial hair, it doesn't matter how similar the facial hair looks. God, again, I think the hairline looks really similar, but that's not something you can estimate from a skull. So this could just be really good artist interpretation that just happens to look like each other. On the other hand, I think the noses are really similar and I think that the mouth is really similar. But again, the mouth is an interpretation because we didn't have that lower jaw. Overall, I think that the age progression looks a lot like the composite sketch. What do you think, Zoe? I really think the age progression and the original composite look a lot alike. I don't know if that's just because they're from the same organization, could have been similar artists who had the same training, but yeah, I see a lot of similarities. I just don't know if it's similarities that we're seeing because of the similarity of the artists or if it's because that's possible. The timeline also matches for Desmond to be our John Doe. Desmond disappeared in 1996, and the estimated time since death before John Doe was found was between 2000 to 2006. Some sources say years before. I tend to believe that he was deceased more years than less years because of the state of his remains. The timeline is a little different than the 2000 to 2006 timeline, but time since death estimations can be off sometimes, and that wouldn't be that off. That would only be four years. The ages also match. Desmond was 16 when he disappeared, and John Doe is between 14 to 19. Desmond fits right in there. This seems like a possibility to me. It seems that Desmond may have been involved in the wrong crowd. There was a robbery that his brother was involved in in December of 1994. 
There is some speculation online that he could have been involved in some sort of organized crime, but it's not confirmed. And other than what I just laid out for you, there isn't much about his case. In fact, the Charlie Project literally says, quote, few details are available about his case, end quote. Okay, so it seems like the timelines may be matching up, the age, some of the physical descriptions. You know, I think that the pictures look similar, but you said that he disappeared from Atlanta. How far exactly is that from where the John Doe was found? I actually have a map if you want to take a look. Based on the map you sent me, it looks like Atlanta is straight west of where our John Doe was found. And depending on what route you take, it looks like Atlanta is about five hours to five and a half hours from where the John Doe was. I'm about to speculate off the rails here for just a second, so bear with me listeners, but if organized crime was involved in Desmond's case, I personally feel like from the organized crime you hear about, gunshot wounds to the head are common, blunt force trauma to the head would be common, but no trauma was found on the John Doe skull. Now, of course, it is totally possible that Desmond could have been stabbed or shot somewhere other than the head or suffered from blunt force trauma anywhere but the head. We don't know. But we do know that Desmond was led away at gunpoint. And didn't you say it was with a gun to the head? Yes, that's what the sources said. So this makes me think that if this was Desmond and Desmond did meet foul play that day, we probably would have seen head trauma. I agree. And I also wonder if it was organized crime, if they would have taken him five hours away. Because that's a really far way to take somebody. Why would they take him so far if he was just abducted in what seems like pretty obvious circumstances? If police know that's what happened, why would they take him five hours, maybe over five hours, depending on the route you take, to dispose of his body? That doesn't make sense to me. I think Desmond could be a possible lead. There's some similarities, but I also think it might just be making the evidence fit how we want it to fit. I think you're right. I think that Desmond's case needs a lot more investigating done on it because for such a brazen crime, there seems to be no information available about it. And I don't understand that whatsoever, but I'm not sure he's our John Doe. So what else do you have for me? I have one more case for you. I found this lead on the same Facebook page I found Desmond's lead on. This next possible match is Dale Leary. Dale went missing on September 1st, 1999. He was last seen on Carver's Bay Road in Hemingway, South Carolina. This was a family member's home. In October of 1999, Leary was reportedly seen in Georgia. Later on, his gray 1999 Oldsmobile Alera was found parked at an apartment complex in Daytona Beach, Florida. At the time of his disappearance, he was 21 years old, had black hair and brown eyes. He was 5'6 and 160 pounds. He was black and would be 44 years old today. On his upper arm, he has a tattoo of his last name and has had a previously fractured nose. Madden, again, I have a picture of him if you wouldn't mind describing and comparing. I can kind of see a similarity in the nose and maybe the lips, but that's pretty much it. I don't think he really looks much like this picture. I think that the eyes are really different. On a surface level glance, they look like they could be family members, but they don't look like they could be the same person. But it's still kind of that striking familial resemblance. Even with that, this case is still an interesting lead. Dale seems to have done a fair amount of traveling after he disappeared, right before he officially vanished, I guess. But there is something that is very interesting about his case and this traveling. And I'm going to send you a map of how close where he was last seen at his family member's home and where John Doe was found. Carver's Bay Road, where Dale was last seen, is actually only an hour and 20 minutes or an hour and 30 minutes north of where John Doe was found. 
So even though Dale might have been in Florida where his car was found 400 miles away, he was still really close to where John Doe was found at some point. And you know what's even crazier? The Wando River, where our John Doe was found? Uh-huh. Yeah, that river intersects with the exact route, that one hour and 20 minute route that we just talked about from where Dale disappeared from. I have a picture zoomed in of the Wando River and that route intersecting. Take a look. Oh, wow. So the road that he would have driven on, likely, or could have driven on, I guess, crosses right over the Wando River. And it's really close to the beginning of the Wando River, too. This is really interesting because if he either jumped, fell, or drove his car into the Wanda River and was washed downstream, that explains why a lot of him wouldn't have been found. Yeah, this is an interesting fact that really lines up. I think that this is the best lead we have geographically, at least. Definitely geographically. But there are some things that we're still going to talk about that I'm not 100% sure. Dale was 21 when he disappeared, which is older than the estimated age of John Doe. However, I know 21-year-olds whose wisdom teeth still haven't come in. So I can look past that. The timeline also makes a lot of sense. It's honestly one of the closest timelines we've seen. He disappeared in 1999. The estimated time since death for John Doe was 2000 to 2006. So that's really close. The photo and the renderings kind of look similar. They're not perfect, like we said, but they could be related. And almost half of the photo rendering was a guess. That's true. The only thing that I have questions about is the traveling. We talked briefly about this in Edna's case in last episode. The eyewitness testimony isn't always that great, which is what I assume the reported sighting of him in Georgia is. And his car could have been driven by someone else to Florida. Even if he was in Georgia and Florida, he still could have been on his way back to his family member's house and something could have happened to him and he could have ended up in the Wando River. All in all, I have some questions about the traveling, but a lot of other things make sense. I think that this case actually makes a lot of sense, especially when you consider how many false sightings of missing people there are that get reported, especially when you consider that we don't have receipts about where his car went and when, so it could have been driven to that location in Florida by anyone at pretty much any time. It doesn't necessarily give us a hard answer where he ended up. My only reservation with this lead is I did see this lead on that 2018 Facebook post and it, it said the tip was submitted. So here we are several years later and still nothing. So I don't know. Do we have DNA? Yes, we have DNA. Okay. Window. Well, maybe they just haven't been able to compare him yet. There's a pretty big backlog on these cases. It's actually a really big issue. There's such a backlog of cold cases that sometimes they just take years to get to potential matches. That's very true. I think all these potential leads are still possibilities. None of these have been excluded from John Doe's case. And none of them are a 100% perfect match. None of them had that mixed ancestry we talked about originally. But these are still really strong leads that definitely should be investigated so they can be ruled out entirely or found out to be our John Doe. I think that you gave us three pretty solid leads. We know that some exclusions have already been done, but has any sort of DNA testing or isotope testing been done? Tell me about the testing that's been done in this case. Unlike the last case I told you about, the case of Little Miss X from Arizona, which if you haven't checked out that episode, make sure you do, there seems to be quite a bit that was done for this case since he was found in 2006. According to that Post and Courier article we mentioned earlier, DNA was extracted from two teeth prior to 2016. Unfortunately, there wasn't much that was learned from that testing. 
They weren't able to determine sex or ancestry. While this DNA extraction might not have proved as helpful as they wanted, they were able to get a DNA profile that could be entered into a national database that houses criminal and missing persons DNA. Were there any matches? Unfortunately, there were no matches. However, this doesn't seem to have stopped investigators from trying to uncover John Doe's identity. The Post and Courier article from 2016 that followed the forensic reconstruction also mentioned that at the same time, DNA was being sent off again to see if they could get better results. Okay, so they sent DNA off a second time to be tested. Did they get anything new? Did they get better results? What came of this? I believe they must have gotten better results. Also, was this when they determined that he was a male and not a female? I believe so. I wasn't able to find anything about the DNA profile being a better match or having a better profile developed that could be entered into the system again. But this does also seem to be the time that our Doe was switched from a Jane to a John Doe. All in all, a lot has been done to keep this case in the minds of investigators and the public. John Doe's case has been featured on Facebook pages, Reddit threads, and so much more. While I've never heard of this case prior to this research, probably because I live in Missouri and not anywhere close to South Carolina, it seems like those who know this case haven't been backing down when it comes to figuring out who he is and what can be done to identify him. We know that DNA has been sent off twice for testing, but apparently hasn't gotten us any closer to identifying him. I'm not sure what the holdup is there, but what else can be done in this case? So I think there's a few important steps that could be taken in John Doe's case. One big step I think that would be great to consider is the use of investigative genetic genealogy. Madden, we've learned quite a bit about this, so would you mind explaining it to our listeners? Yeah, so investigative genetic genealogy, also called IgG, is a relatively new forensic tool that investigators have been able to use. The first step to using this technology is to get a solid DNA profile. Next, the DNA profile can be uploaded into a database that can help you find your ancestry. The key is the use of public genealogy resources like Family Tree DNA and GEDmatch. The idea is that someone in an unidentified person's family has uploaded their DNA into one of these databases. It's actually really common that someone has. All that's really needed for a good match is a fourth cousin, and everyone has hundreds of fourth cousins. Anyways, once the DNA profile is uploaded into the database and a match is found, forensic genealogists are able to start building the family tree backwards. They start at wherever the match is made, and they work backwards until they find the common ancestry between the unknown DNA profile and the match that they found. Once the common ancestor is found, the family tree can be completed until they find the person whose DNA is unknown. Right. So investigative genetic genealogy has been revolutionary. It's the same technology that was able to finally catch and arrest the Golden State killer. And it's not just used in trying to find suspects to violent crimes. It has been used to find the identities of Jane and John Doe's. Yeah, I think most of the solves you hear about unidentified John and Jane Doe's come from DNA testing and genetic genealogy. Yeah. If law enforcement has a good enough DNA profile, they should really consider using this tool. It's a wonderful technology that has been proven useful in the past several years. Lots of John and Jane Doe's have been identified, and this technology can potentially help bring this case one step closer to being solved. I think that would be a really good idea in this case. Do you have any more ideas of what else could be done, though? I think radiocarbon testing would be a really great test to do, too. And I don't know if they've done this, and they just haven't made it public information. That's very possible. But regardless, Madden, would you mind explaining radiocarbon testing used in forensic cases? Basically, radiocarbon testing helps determine how much carbon, specifically carbon-14, there is in an individual. Every living organism absorbs carbon-14 while they're alive. 
When the organism dies, that carbon-14 starts to decay. Carbon-14 is unstable, which means that it will decay eventually. Luckily, we know the half-life, or about how long it takes for half of the radioactive isotope to decay, of carbon-14. This allows us to take a sample from an organism that is deceased and determine when the organism was born and when it died. This testing has become even more important after the 1950s bomb testings began. After 1950, the carbon-14 conditions in the atmosphere were forever changed. This also helps determine if an individual was born and or died before 1950. There's obviously more specific scientific steps to this testing, but this is the bare bones and it explains enough about radiocarbon testing to help us know what it could provide to this case. Right. Radiocarbon testing could give us an idea of his birth year and his death year. Radiocarbon testing is a really simple way to get some answers. Like I said, there's a chance investigators have already done radiocarbon testing and we just don't know about it, but I haven't found anything in the public realm that says that they have and what those results would be if they were conducted. I think that radiocarbon testing is something that investigative agencies usually keep to themselves. It's not usually made public information just because the public doesn't usually need to know that information. That's usually something that is really important to investigators. And people in the public aren't really going to know how to interpret the radiocarbon results. Like somebody who's trained to do it would be able to. That's also the thing is that when you run radiocarbon tests, it doesn't just pop out a birth year and a death year. It's like this really complex chart that you kind of have to know how to read. So you need someone that knows how to interpret it. I think there is also one last type of forensic testing that could be done that we haven't yet discussed in this episode, but we've talked about it a lot. I think I know what you're going to say. Isotope testing. So Madden, could you fill us in on isotopes again? If you've listened to our first two episodes, you've heard us talk about isotope testing before, but we've got some new information for you today. Like we've discussed, bones, teeth, and hair collect isotopes through your normal activities and based on where you live at that time. Even though they just have the cranium of this individual, this is enough to do isotopes. We haven't discussed this in depth yet, but teeth can be a really good indicator of isotopes as well. Like we learned in last week's case, isotopes can tell us where an individual grew up. Isotopes in teeth can tell us where they lived while their teeth were developing, which is where they were born or spent their early years. This can be really helpful when trying to match an unidentified remains case to a missing persons case because it gives us a birthplace. Right. If we knew where this John Doe was born or spent his early years, this could help tremendously. We do know that isotopes act as an average, so if John Doe moved around a lot, it could be hard to narrow down the search. But there's always a chance that this information could prove very, very helpful. So I think there's no harm in trying. All in all, this case seems solvable. There's DNA, there's potential matches, there's so much going for this case. Even though the cranium is all that is available, I feel like this case is just a few steps away from being solved. If we keep remembering this John Doe, if we keep bringing attention to his case, if we keep researching and telling our friends and families about him, it's only a matter of time before the boy found in Wando River is identified. If you have any information about the case of John Doe found in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina in August of 2006, please reach out to the appropriate resources. We will have that information linked in our show notes and on our website. If you want to see any of the pictures from today's episode, please make sure to head over to our website or our Instagram. Feel free to reach out to us if you have any thoughts on the case, ideas for a future episode, or anything else relevant to the show on our Instagram or on our website. We want to hear from you guys. Be sure to follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Instagram. And if you've been listening to us and enjoying the stories we're bringing you and want to help us reach even more people, be sure to leave us a five-star rating. 
If you don't want to do that, share our podcast with your friends and family. We want these cases to get out there and we want to help these does get identified. Also, don't forget to go check out our Patreon, which will be dropping in just a few days. We're going to start out with one level at just $5 a month. At this level, you'll get one extra full-length episode per month and one mini episode per month. So if you want to hear even more stories about these does and some of the missing people we talk about in these episodes, be sure to head over to our Patreon and sign up for our Doe Detectives membership. Again, thank you for joining us this week on the Unnamed Doe Podcast. We'll see you next week. This podcast was written and researched by Zoe Reese. All editing was done by Madden Delaney. Our theme music was created by Zoe Reese.